<laughs> hey, it'll be easier if I put you actually on the speakerphone. I thought it would automatically do that. <laughs> no, but I'm here now. You're good either way from here. Did you get your coffee? You all set? Indeed, I'm all set. All right, beautiful. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Craft Business Life podcast. My name is Lee Solomon. Uh, I'm very excited about my guest today. He's got a very unique uh, career, and he does theater in a place that most people probably wouldn't uh, think of as a place to do theater, and and many other things that, that we will explain. Um, he is a playwright, and he is a professor, and he is the head of something called the uh, Last Frontier Theater Conference that has been going on. How long has the conference been going on now, Dawson? Started in 1993. Since 93, and it takes place in Alaska, which is where uh, Dawson lives and works. So, again, that's uh, not something that most people, especially if you're in New York like me, uh, would mm. I think of, but it's an amazing thing that I heard about a long time ago, and anyway, he'll explain about everything. It's just a really cool conference that takes place there in Alaska every year. Anyway, so he is the head of it, among other things. Dawson Moore is my guest today. Dawson, thank you again so much for coming on. Super, glad to be here. Absolutely. So, of course, my intro was a little rambly and all over the place because there is so many different aspects to to what I want to talk about with you. Um, but first, uh, why don't we start with, why don't you tell everybody what it is you do, both in terms of running the conference and being a professor there at the college and, you know, what your sort of day-to-day -day life is about at this point. Sure, you bet. Um, so, um, uh, how we know each other is I'm the coordinator of the Valdez Boston Two Theater Conference. Uh, it's been going on since '93. I came to attend it for the first time uh, in 1995. I was a college student at the uh, University of Alaska Anchorage in their theater program, and '95 uh, was the first year that they opened up um, a program called the Play Lab, uh, which that year was available only to Alaskan playwrights. And so, I, being a young college kid, had just written my first play and. What the heck? Why not? I'll go. And, and the conference had a few uh, amazing stars of the American theater at it. Uh, that year was, oh, I want to say Edward Albee, maybe Terrence McNally, a few others. Um, and uh, and it, it changed my life uh, that first year. Uh, all of these amazing professionals uh, treated all of us as their peers. And, you know, when you're a kid who went to UAA theater because he didn't bother to apply anywhere else and he's not really sure what he's doing for his life, uh, to have uh, someone like Mr. Albee uh, treat you like a peer is, is, a, is a moving experience. Uh, that was where I met uh, my life mentor, Michael Warren Powell, passed away a couple of years ago, but an amazing, gener amazingly generous man on whom I've uh, modeled a lot of, of my life and my career. Um, the conference itself uh, now is a uh, essentially eight-day event. Uh, that happens every June, uh, second week in June, um, and it's a, it's essentially a, a giant craft workshop focusing on new work. Uh, we'll present every year somewhere between fifty and fifty-five readings of new plays in the play lab uh, with the authors in attendance. They come from as far away as Australia and Greece, uh, with a primary uh, a majority of them coming from inside the country. Um, and then we'll have, you know, six evenings of live theater, probably about 25 classes, a few other programs. Everybody who comes to it gets a free couple-hour cruise to a glacier. 
Uh, we have a fun, silly closing gala uh, dinner at the end where we all get fancy costumes. There's a late-night fringe festival. It's a pretty complete theatrical inundation for a week. We have events running from 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, events, the latest event would end somewhere around 11 o'clock at night, and we do that for eight days in a row. I mean, it. you know, when I first heard about it from our mutual friend, uh, Nick Herbert, and uh, he described it, and I was just salivating. It sounded so amazing. And I feel the same way now hearing you talk about it. And, of course, I regrettably still have never made it. And at some point, hopefully I will. But in any event, it really does sound uh, absolutely phenomenal um, for people who want to be involved in, in playwriting, directing, acting, any of that stuff. Um, and uh, so tell us more about you know, how it started and who, who's behind it and, you know, what the logistics of it really are. Sure, you bet. Um, it started in 1993. It started uh, with a postcard. Um, the woman, Joanne C. McDowell, who had taken over as the president of the local community college here, uh, had worked on the William Inge Festival uh, for a number of years and knew Edward Albee through that, and uh, he thought it would be nice to drop her a postcard and say, wow, you're in the middle of nowhere, Alaska. Congratulations, I guess. Um, and she promptly seized upon that uh, and said, uh, what do you think of coming here? And we'll throw a theater conference here in the middle of nowhere. And he's like, well, I guess so. So uh, that first year, they had Edward Albee and um, Andrew Wilson and um, a few other people, and they had a, a smallish conference, but that, that was the real impetus for it, and especially in those early years, there was a lot of confusion. Like, for a couple of years, they actually called it the Edward Albee Theater Conference, which he didn't want. He said you could name it that and, and after him after he was dead. Um, but it was very synonymous, and during the first, and what I call the first half of the conference's history, uh, that was the focus of it. It was a split focus between the play lab that I've described earlier, new work development, uh, and honoring uh, some of the major legends of American theater. Uh, you know, as a young college kid, I got to meet Arthur Miller and, and meet August Wilson and meet Patricia Neal and take classes from them. Uh, the, so many amazing people uh, came up during those um, uh, during that, that first twelve uh, years, where you really, you know, the history of our of our craft was was there hanging out with you in a hallway in the middle of nowhere. I'm going to stop calling this place the middle of nowhere. I love it here. <laughs> but um, and then um, and then there was a split in 2005. Um, uh, the president who had founded uh, the conference uh, left this job and moved off uh, to another college and actually started another conference that is uh, still going uh, great. Uh, the Great Plains Theater Conference, which I've heard from everybody, is awesome and a super good experience. Um, and. Um, and this point was uh, acrimonious and, um, and ended up that all of those um, major players uh, needed to pull out um, for various reasons. But So I was left uh, here. The, the leadership of the university system asked me and uh, Doug DeSorcy, who was, uh, who was the interim president who took over at that point, whether we could throw this conference. Uh, and uh, not knowing what we were talking about, he and I said, sure, yeah, we can throw the conference, yeah. Uh, it was a hard year. Um, uh, Mr. Albee was very displeased with us uh, that we were uh, keeping this going without him and without um, and without the other founder. Uh, so uh, there was a, an active attempt to uh, to keep us from doing it. And I completely understand it. The thing was synonymous with his name, but uh, in the end, uh, we had all this you know funding from the university and the state and other sources to do this event for um, for people. So 
taking away all of those things that were uh, that were a part of the first half of the conference, I was left to coordinate it based on my experience of having done it from the bottom up, from having been the college kid who was sleeping on gymnasium floors in order to attend, uh, who was surviving off of the free lunch that was being provided, uh, who wasn't getting a welcome basket for coming. He was barely acknowledged as existing. Um and so I got to um, I got to recraft, re- reshape it, and I crafted it uh, into the conference that I w- thought this is what I would have wanted for myself when I was younger. This is what I, I think would have been most useful. Um, and it's been, it's been a great experience. It's certainly the honor of my life to get to do this. I've made a bajillion mistakes along the way, uh, especially those first three, four years. Woof. Um, you know, I, I was not qualified for this job and um, had to do it anyway, which is you know, a lot of life, you know, you all human beings, we have to do what is in front of us to do. And it's amazing how the human spirit allows us to accomplish things that technically we can't do. Um, and now, um, and now the conference, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's always growing and it's always changing every year is different. Um, but it is, it is about, uh, it's about studying the craft and there's something unique uh, about this kind of event because you're talking about 200 people, not 200 plus people coming to, um, to talk about theater, they're that passionate about it, this far away. There's the personal expense level that is one of the primary reasons that keeps people away. Uh, you know, getting to a place like Valdez uh, is not a cheap travel. Uh, taking a week off from your life, the opportunity cost of your missed uh, labor there. It's in summer, so inside of our field, lots of people uh, have summer gigs that keep them from doing it. Um, so it's amazing to me how many people make this an every year part of their uh, journey. Um, and amazing how many people manage to, when they find out they're in, manage to make the time to come and join us. Yeah, you know, it's, I, I, it really is one of those things that, you know, if you're not a theatrical artist yourself, if you don't really understand the, the passion for it that we have, um, it is hard to understand why something like this is such a big deal why it is so appealing despite the various obstacles you were just describing. You know, I guess one analogy could be like a musician getting to come jam with a whole bunch of other great musicians, you know, things like that. So, so yeah, it's, you know, if, if you're in that world, you get it. And if you're not, you may, maybe you don't, but, uh, but it, so, um, for those that love it, uh, and there are many of us, uh, it, it's, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. Um, so much of our, um, so much of our journey as artists is in competition with each other. There are so few golden rings where you get to make a living, right. uh, and, and we have to compete with each other. And, you know, when, when you're talking about that, you know, when you're talking about playwriting, there are so few people who get to make anything like they're living in this field that every time there's a production opportunity, you'd like it to have your play in it. Uh, and so that's so much a part of our journey. What we try to provide people with here is a week where they're not competing with each other, where they are literally just here to support each other. Some of it might creep in just because that's our nature, but we try to make something that is, is a safe space for just learning and growing and networking but the best thing I think we do above anything else is connect artists with each other. People who've met here have gone on to form theater companies elsewhere. I've had my work produced uh, in Europe because of people I met here. You just you find all sorts of fascinating connections that come up from it. Yeah, and again, I, Ryan, you know, Nick and I, you know, worked on uh, with with your scripts uh, and all, of course, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, now, you know, 
And I'm sorry, I keep getting a little mixed up on the dates. So the conference started in 93, and you've yep. been running it since when? Oh, uh, that's an interesting enough story to tell. Um, I was uh, I was burn- beginning to burn out on the conference in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, I, to some extent, it was sort of, while each year featured a new amazing person, to some extent, the programming was beginning to settle into place. More importantly to me personally, the first five years of the conference, they took my work and were presenting it. The sixth year, they did not accept my play. The seventh year, they didn't accept my play. The eighth year, they didn't accept my play. And the eighth year, I was coming, but it was going to be my last time. I felt like I had gotten what I could get from this event. Um, Interesting. And I, I, uh, it was, it, <laughs> I, um, uh, my personal email address. Oh no, I'm giving it out on the radio. Uh, my personal email address is DawsonGuyAtJuno.com. That's right, I'm still on Juno. And uh, DawsonGuy. Uh, so when I got my rejection letter the eighth year, it's a physical. It was a physical mailed letter at that point. It was addressed to Dawson Guy, dear Mister Guy. <laughs> and I was like, man, I've been coming for eight years. You don't even know who I am. Uh-huh. And it was. It, it was, you know, we all make database mistakes, and Mail Merge is a tough program. No one was intending to insult me or whatever, but I, I, I was I was about done. I felt like this place was no longer really for me, uh, so I was coming down just to sort of have a laugh party and see all my friends who I only saw at this place, and then I was going to move on with my life. And um, stri- we arrived at about, oh, I don't know, 3 o'clock in the morning. Um, and I told one of the people I drove in with that I wanted to go to the first day because that was when the conference was sprawling out to 10 days long. And it all, I always felt bad for playwrights who were presenting their work on like the first Friday when no one was there. Right. Yeah. And was, that was lame. So I had I, I told my friend that I was going to go. So I remember her waking me up at 7.45 or something going, hey, you said you wanted to go to that first reading. I'm like, oh, yeah. You going to come with me? And she's like, no, I'm going to bed. I'm like, right, okay. But I staggered up the hill to the Civic Center, and I walked in, and the, and the president of the college grabbed me by the arm and said, oh, thank goodness you're here. You need to be a panelist. Uh, and I was like, what? what? Uh, uh, okay. So I, um, so I went into a room, and I started doing that thing that I'd been watching people do at the conference for eight years and, and you know, had my own theater career, might be an overstatement, but was, had been doing theater the whole time and was involved in new play development. Uh, so did that night when I walked out of the, um, out of that room for lunch, uh, there was a very pretty girl there handing out pictures of my face to everyone to tell them how important I was, uh, which was so quite a swing from I'm on my last year and these people don't know who I am to people, you know, them very clearly trying to convince everyone that I was very important. Um, and, um, that was a, that was the one, well, that was the most problematic year of, of the conference. Um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Dawson. Maybe I'm missing something, but I, I'm not quite following. Why were they handing out your picture? Oh, because I was drafted to be a respondent in the play lab. Um, oh. That I'd gone from being someone whose work wasn't good enough to get in to now being someone who was good enough uh, that he should be telling other people what they should do with their plays. <laughs> oh, so you ended up... I, I, again, I'm, forgive me for not following clearly. So you... You they ended up making you like a, like a judge or something. Right, yeah. The, the play lab, and they, sometimes I forget what the mechanics people do and don't know. But in the play lab, every uh, every reading is responded to by three responses. <laughs> got lab. it. Got it. Okay. And I got to be one of them. So um so after that year, uh, it had gone pretty rough. I remember uh, the president and Edward Albee really screaming at each other in front of a lot of people um, at our at our wrap up meeting. Uh, they contacted me and said, "Hey." 
you know, we had some challenges there, but we thought you did great work, and we want you to come up here and coordinate the play lab for us. Now, this was, uh, of course, incredibly flattering and a real job, but I was in San Francisco at the time, and I don't know if you've been there, but it's pretty cool. <laughs> I was having a great time. So I was like, oh, no, I can't. I got a theater company. And it's literally the only thing my parents have agreed on in 30 years. They're like, you, they want to give you a job with money for your theater degree? Right. You have to at least consider it. Yeah. So I'm like, ah, yeah. okay, I'll consider it. And by the time I was considering it, of course I wanted to do it. Uh, so I came up on a part-time contract in March of 2003. Within a week of being here, uh, the president was really pushing me to um, to stay on and work at the college full-time. Uh, and, and moreover, I was, you know, I came up to coordinate the play lab, and I was doing all sorts of things above and beyond the call of play lab. I was doing things I didn't know how to do, like insurance and housing and all this stuff. Um, so uh, that was how I ended up being here. Uh, so uh, I was the coordinator for the first couple of years. At that point, my job as coordinator was much more of a turnkey worker. Um, I, I had very little say in the actual art artistic choices of the event. Um, uh, after the president's change, I was left as the theater guy in Valdez, so most of the artistic decisions got left to me. Most of the choices, what shows to bring, what plays to bring, what actors to bring, all that stuff began to fall almost completely on my shoulders. Um, uh, so, uh, as you do, I, I did what had to be done and then uh, established an advisory board and get lots of smart people to give me good advice. Well, so yeah, so basically you've been doing it more or less about 16 years now, and, uh, you know, it's, it is an incredibly unique job you get to have, as you said, uh, as well as a very, uh, challenging one, uh, I'm sure. Um, so, you know, now that you've been doing it, uh, for some time and you, you said you made mistakes and learned things along the way, which of course, you know, how could you not? Uh, but now that you have a pretty good, pretty good flow of it, um, having been doing it, you know, how long you have now, uh, give us a sense of the general, you know, schedule for you each year. So the conference takes place in the summer. Uh, you, in this case, it's in June, right? Yep. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's been in June for uh, almost uh, every year I've done it, except for one year we did May. Okay, so, it's in, so it's in June. And I take it you're pretty much starting work on it as early as the previous September, or you tell me. Oh, yeah. No, long-range planning uh, goes on constantly. Immediately after it's over, there's, you know, the cleanup. Uh, and then uh, being that we're an academic institution, <laughs> you absolutely have to have uh, assessment, and I'm a huge believer in it. Um, so that's what happens immediately afterwards. We clean everything up, and we send out lots of questionnaires saying, hey, tell us how we did. How was it? Uh, then um, a few years back, the college was was dealing with budget crunch, and uh, I offered to uh, to take a month of, of unpaid furlough in, uh, in July. And uh, they would now have to pry that furlough from my cold, dead hands. Um, <laughs> I will absolutely take a month off in July. Um, uh, so I took a month off in July, but then, uh, then we kicked back up in, in, in August. Um, that would be when we head into a combination of specific planning, uh, uh, figuring out which uh, which artists are going to be staffing our, our featured artists, being our play lab respondents, figuring out which uh, which plays will be filling our evening play slot. Uh, fundraising, of course, is always on one's mind. Uh, uh, and then the play lab uh, submissions start up in August. 
Uh, we take uh, somewhere between 400 and 500 over the last three years of mesh uh, And so paneling those is a huge call. Uh, I have a, a lot of, uh, uh, of other readers who do reading for me, uh, but I literally process every play that comes in personally. Wow. Um, uh, just, I, I just, the challenge is, is that if you farm it out and just have people say, say you give you know, 500 plays, say you give 25 people 20 plays a piece and they tell you their favorite two, you don't know, maybe you gave 20 good plays to one and they're giving you the two best. Maybe you gave 29 good plays to sure. somebody else and they're giving you two that aren't very good. So I just, I feel like in terms of the, I'm not literally the artistic director of the event, but to some extent the job is filled in that way. Um, but in terms of, uh, in terms of the, uh, uh, in terms of paneling, I think you have to have a view from the top of the mountain of the submission. You need to have a view that can say, I have seen all that has been presented and I am picking these for many and various reasons, uh, whether those reasons and quality is always number one, but diversity is right up there, uh, in terms of racial diversity, gender diversity, um, uh, in terms of subject line, you know, uh, I don't, last year, I remember I got two, uh, super good plays that were, um, that were on, uh, uh, Monica Lewinsky. I don't need two plays on Monica Lewinsky in my right. lineup. Right. Um, right. So, you know, I, I, I flipped the coin and weighed the factors and, and, and picked that one. Um, uh, so, um, so there's a huge chunk there. Then, uh, once we turn the corner, uh, we make announcements towards the end of February, and that's when we begin the hard push on recruiting people to come play with us. Um, uh, this, uh, uh, and that would be primarily recruiting the actors. So we send the invitations out to playwrights. Uh, every year, I over-invite by about eh, 15 slots, um, because yeah, <laughs> you know, if you're a playwright and you're submitting, some people are just going as fast as they can. They see you'll take their play and they submit it. Then they get a message going, Congratulations! You've won an expensive vacation to Alaska. Right. And they're like, "Wait, I applied to what?" <laughs> they had to drop out. Right. Um, uh, which you know, it, I totally understand. You know, it, 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 we're we're not an inexpensive option in terms of a way to spend a week. We're awesome, but not inexpensive. So I'm never going to hold against. Uh, we do everything we can uh, with our conference to make it accessible to people who ha- have financial challenges. Sure. We literally, for a week long conference, that includes free daily lunch. And a half hour cruise to a glacier and six evenings of live theater. And also our registration fee this year probably goes up next year, but this year and for the last five years has been $50. Yeah. Uh, right. It's nothing. It doesn't begin to help pay for the event. Um, but we have to accept that the people coming here have to do the travel to get here. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's super expensive. We offer very, very minimal free accommodations for people, mostly uh, for young people. I don't know that I can live with them anymore, but we open up our dorms and then we cram them as full of as many people as we can. Um, we do uh, offer free food every day. Um, we do as many things as we can to keep it affordable. But that said, to some extent, if you, you have to have a certain amount of money to take a week-long vacation in Alaska. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, just out of curiosity... Those that don't stay in the dorms, what do they do? Just pay for hotels and stuff on their own, or? Yeah, yeah usually. Uh, yeah, we, we, every year there's a few people who camp. Um, you know, there are people who love the outdoors more than I do, and they they're, they're, they can make their way that way. Uh, my dear friend Mark Rokoff and his wife Sarah Baird uh, camp every year. Um, gotcha. Uh, so certainly there's some of that, but generally speaking, yeah, they go over there. I think the conference is having sort of three primary 
communities that it serves. The first and foremost for me always will be its participants, the people who are putting their time and money into coming in to talk about art, creating a good program for them, creating a good experience for as many of them as possible is my number one goal. Uh, the second one is the university likes the prestige of having an event that's been alive this long, uh, that has this good of a national reputation, and so it's serving uh, my masters that way. And then the third one is the economic development for a town. Um, towns host things like this, and the city puts resources into helping us, including donating our amazing Civic Center for the week and, and other things. Um, uh, but it, it also is economic development for the businesses in town, from the bars to the restaurants to the hotels to the gift shops to the Safeway to everything. Sure. And, um, oh, man, there's so, so much I want to unpack with you. So, um, so okay, so in terms of... Uh, you know, artists that can attend. So you have the playwrights that you choose their plays, and then you have the actors who are going to read or perform in the plays. Um, mm -hmm. And and are, are there directors involved as well, or is it really just playwrights and actors? Yeah, there's a little bit of everything. Our, our primary, I mean... Actors are the are the oil that makes the theater go. You can't without pouring them in your tank. You gotta yeah. Well. yeah. Um, so so our primary participants for sure are the playwrights and the actors. But and uh, you know I suppose this has always been true. But there are a lot of hyphenates out there. Uh, a lot of people who are actor directors, playwright directors, or all three. Um, and then um, uh, and then there are a few who come uh, who are, are strictly just directors inside of the play lab responding panelists. We try to make sure we have at least a couple of directors included in there. What we try to avoid is just having all playwrights. Um, because while I think on some level that's the primary respondent I want, I also want other voices involved in that. Um, sure. Uh, I, I guess what I, what, I, what I was meaning to ask more specifically is, you know, in terms of what actually goes on, uh, is it simply staged readings of plays? I guess there's no time to like. Oh sure, yeah. Let me that. So we um. So what happens is we invite them. They confirm to coming. Once they confirm to coming, uh, we invite based on uh, specific time slots. We take plays anywhere from 20 minutes long to two hours long, mm. and there's a certain number of slots for each length of play. So as people confirm, we get them slotted in, and and there's a difference between a 20-minute play and a two-hour play. With a 20-minute play, I might use that slot to help develop, say, a young writer. It might not be the best play, but that's a great place for them to get the kind of experience that I had as a kid uh, in college uh, when I came here, where being a peer changed my life. That's the opportunity, the 20- and 30-minute plays. Once you're up to 60 minutes, then you're taking an hour off of someone's life to watch it. Those plays need to be pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but then, uh, then, uh, we have, um, uh, I have a guy working for me. His name's Ryan Buen. He's my play lab coordinator. Uh, he's got a lot of duties, but then his primary duty early on is the casting of the play lab. Um, and once it's cast, we give playwrights the option to have a director. Um, we offer it out. Uh, most of them run their own rehearsal, uh, but we also offer them the op option to have a director. Uh, there was one year where we tried having a director for every play, and that was terrible. That was just bad. Yeah. It was, it was, you know, it was, it was one of the years where we were even bigger. Like, I think there was like 80 or 90 plays that year, and we had to have a director for every one. And, Boy, talk about taking a pretty pure process and shoving 80 or 90 playwright relationships into it. Right. Boy, it's right. bad. Because um, uh, some people just aren't comfortable running the room, and I totally get that, and I'm totally okay with that. Yeah. Some people 
the rehearsal is one run rehearsal the day before you're reading and then it goes up. So it's not like it's intricate direction. It's not like it's really full fledged staging. Uh, we give, we give all the playwrights an excellent guide that, uh, Marshall W. Mason, uh, created specifically for our event, uh, to help them and how to, um, how to put their reading together. Um, uh, so, uh, and, and for, you know, for some playwrights, it's not their back for others. They get to experience their play in a different way. Uh, and it's, and it works out great for them. Um, so, and then the reading, the reading goes up after, uh, after the next day after the rehearsal. Uh, then there's a public feedback session then. Uh, including an audience feedback session. I will say our audience feedback sessions are really pretty strong, uh, back to our, our base group. And, and then, um, and then everybody, all the playwrights have a private one-on-one meeting with one of their panelists, uh, to have a more private conversation about the script. Cause there are some things you can say about a play in private that should not be said in a room full of people. Um, and so, um, yeah, that was an interesting, uh, modification that we made. Um, I'll be among other people really pushed to get rid of the public feedback session. Yeah. Um, there are lots of great reasons to do that. So much damage can be done to authors um, uh, in uh, in public feedback sessions, damage to their plays, damage to them personally, all that stuff. On the other hand, for me as a participant, the discussions of other people's plays were really generally more valuable than the discussions of my play to me. They were where I really learned the craft of dramaturgy. I, I remember the literal first reading I went to in 95. I walked in and I watched this play and I was so bored for like two hours and then it was over and these super smart people got up and they explained to me why I was bored. It was amazing. I never thought that I could really parse it in the way they did to understand my experience like that. So I was not willing to lose the public session because I think it's an important part of our process. On the other hand, who am I here to serve? Those playwrights. So that's why we added a private session for each one of them as well. Boy, that that all sounds great. And again, I know it it was over time and through trial and error and learning, of course. But you guys have really, you know, kind of kind of thought of everything, which is great. I like that a lot. So um, when so so the readings are, you know, the actors are moving around. You know, it's not they're not. Reading. I always sitting. recommend people to vote. I, I always recommend that you should keep movement very, very simple. The more things you throw at an actor that they have to do inside of a one rehearsal process, right. the more they're not just living through in the character. Okay, got it. So it's essentially a reading with, you know, mostly just maybe some simple blocking and stuff. Okay. Um, right. Got it, got it. So, um, wow. So, so let's talk about... Um, you know, some of the things you were just alluding to and earlier talking about uh, when you have to evaluate all these plays. And by the way, I, I, I loved your point about the the possible missing out by putting, you know, giving one person 20 plays to read and so forth. That made a lot of sense. Um, so, you know, and you're a playwright yourself, and we're going to go back through all your experience and training and everything also. But in general, I'm fascinated by, you know, how one, you know, what kinds of criteria and things can be used because, you know, it's easy to dismiss all art as subjective and, you know, how can you possibly say, you know, beyond, you know, something that's pretty obvious, you know, that a play is good or bad or whatever. Um, so let's talk about just in general, you know, when you look at a script at a play, 
Um, what are some of the basic ways you can evaluate the quality of it? Okay. Um, well, I'll say I'll talk first a little bit about what I'm looking for for the lab, and then I'll go more specifically into and uh, in each individual script. Sure. What I'm looking for in the lab is I am looking for a variety. I am looking for a variety of types of storytelling. I'm looking for a variety of, uh, of voices, both in terms of age, in terms of gender, in terms of ethnic diversity. I want to have a, a, a real panoply of stuff. because, And that goes against what I like personally. If you ask me what I like personally, I like dirty, dark comedies. That's my favorite. I like me some Nicky Silver from the 90s. I like some Martin McDonough. I like Joe Barnes. I like people who, who have a really sharp, dark vision and... I don't want to just stage the Dawson Moore conference. I'm staging a theater conference. <laughs> so so I, I weigh a lot of factors out in that. In terms of what it is that um, that uh, that each script is being judged on, that's pretty complicated. The first thing I'd say I look for is, um, is confidence. Um, and it's a pretty vague term, but boy, I tell you what, when I read, when you, if you read a ton of plays, you can tell the difference between a writer who has a vision that they're following that they know and that they believe in and a writer who doesn't and a writer or a writer who is fuzzier in what they're doing. Um, And so to some extent, it's this very vague, very intangible thing. Confidence. Uh, I try not to, but I am a bit of a format snob. Like I think, I think writing uh, plays is incredibly hard. I think formatting plays is, Oh, I don't know. A little tricky. Um, so if you can't do the thing that's a little tricky, my experience has generally been that the harder craft of writing a full-length play is going to be beyond you. It's not universally true, and I've certainly taken some plays that were formatted in all sorts of strange ways. But I think of that as just, uh, again, it's a little snobby, but I think of that as having respect before the craft. Um, I, it doesn't mean- sorry, just to, just to be clear, when you mm-hmm. say formatting in this context, are you talking about literally like the the layout on the page or are you talking about yep. something about the the content itself no i'm talking about playing layout on the page i'm talking about making something readable i'm talking about you know uh, I'm, I'm talking about having uh, yeah having it be something readable where sure. you can do the best i always liken it to like if you know if you don't do that formatting stuff if you have typos throughout your thing it's oh, kind yeah. of like having beautiful baby that you'd wander around in a dirty diaper and show to everybody. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's a beautiful baby, but it's covered in feet, so that's no good. <laughs> um, uh, so I mean, literally that. And like I said, it's not a universal thing. I've taken some strangely formatted work, but but I do find that it's often an indicator. Uh, and it is, yeah. in, in, it's an indicator. It's something that I have to work against because I don't want to miss the great story because of some sort of nonsense minutia like, uh, like formatting. On the other hand, my experience is that if you can't format a play, as often as not, more often than not, that's going to lead to uh, it's going to be done by somebody who hasn't who hasn't bothered to look up why a play, how a play should be formatted, who hasn't done that basic level of work. Of course. Um, uh, so, um, uh, you know, beyond that, so much of it is subjective. I have my little things that are quirks for me. I, for example, when I see a page and it has characters talking back and forth, but each of their lines of dialogue is two to four lines long, mm-hmm. that is often a good indication that it's a writer who's writing characters who aren't listening to each other. Mm-hmm. They're all, they're just, two of them is pontificating at each other. It's not going to play long. It's going to play, uh, well, it's going to play long. Uh, I feel like that's, that, that's one of the weird little quirks that people have. 
Sure. Uh, um, um, what else can I say about it? No, I, I think I think those are those are sort of some beginning things. But like I said, in general, I am really looking for variety. And I, if you're writing confidently, I'll do that. We have an interesting thing that's different from a lot of people. We don't do blind submissions mm-hmm. um, to the Play Lab. And just for people who might not know, blind submission means that you don't have your contact information or name on it anywhere, so that in theory, the judges who are reading your work don't know who wrote it. Yes. Um, I don't do that for about really two reasons. Um, first, it's not uh, – when I was reading for the conference when I was down in San Francisco, I was involved in, in paneling for them. They sent me blind scripts, but I still knew about, I don't know, 15% of the scripts that were sent to me because I either knew the writer or knew the script in particular or could figure out the writer from their writing. Um, so it wasn't really like it was blind anyway. It was just blind to the people I didn't know. Right, right, right. Um, So it was sort of not really truthfully what was going on with it. Uh, And the second one is that I think of the Valdez Lassenteer Theater Conference as developing playwrights much more than it develops individual plays. Mm, Um, You know, our process is so quick, right? It's so quick. You only have one rehearsal, and then it goes up in front of the audience. You're talking about it. Uh, Almost any other conference you go to will involve more attention to your script, more more time spent on developing your script. It's not that we don't have great readings. We have great readings. Uh, but it's not the same kind of massive development of an individual script you get elsewhere. I stand beside the week you spend here, the, the, the inundation that you get, all of those conversations about those 50-something plays that are in the play lab, all of that is bigger than the individual plays that are being worked on themselves. Yeah. So... Um, when I'm taking scripts, where it is in a, in a writer's process is a part of, uh, of the analysis. Who the writer is as a participant is a part of the process. Um, uh, so there are lots of, 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 of things like that that go into it. Uh, if you're a writer who's been with us lots and lots of years and I get a script from you that I don't think is up to your standards, that might, you know, it might get into somebody else's, but maybe it won't get into yours. If you're a writer who came here and did nothing but whine and complain and make problems for my staff, hey, I don't want to, I don't want to confuse you. I'm probably not going to take your work again because even if it's good, I don't care. There's lots of good work. <laughs> yeah, of course. I'll take somebody else's good work who's not a jerk. Absolutely. Uh, well, that's a big part of, of you know, all you know, that's a big part of, every time you're trying to do something in the arts or in anything in life, really. Uh, absolutely. I, I had a casting director on the podcast a while ago, and she said a big part of casting for her is, um, you know, is the person just a good person and someone that she's comfortable working with or, you know, recommending to someone else to work with. So, yeah. Um, so, so... That, that all makes sense. Let's talk more broadly about playwriting as an art form because, you know, it, it, there's so much overlap these days and so many different things that can interfere with how to think about playwriting. So, first of all, we're in an era where we are just absolutely bombarded with screen, you know, camera content. So we can watch TV shows, movies, YouTube web series, you know, you, you can be looking at, you know, fictional content made for camera mediums, you know, 24-7 if you want to, and never run out. 
So will be falling behind. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> so that's so everybody now is just used to that type of content. Now, obviously, there are people who still love to go see live theater, uh, and then of course the lines of what is live theater have also been somewhat blurred because. You know, there's so much more they can do technically, you know, in theaters now. And, you know, it, all the Disney Broadway stuff and I guess musicals and all that are a whole other topic. But the point is, there's a lot of complications and blurred lines and things with theater versus other, you know, versus camera-based media. So, and obviously, if you are a playwright, you know, you can still go as as fantastical as you want, you know, and, and people do, and there is a way to do that on stage. So all that is to lead to my asking you, how do you, def how do you, how would you explain to someone who wants to write a play, which is for the stage, versus for something that's going to be on camera in some way, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I'm not getting the question out clearly, but I think you understand what I'm asking. What What is playwriting as opposed to writing for film or television? Okay. Okay. Um, now, a couple of things. Uh, I'll start first with some broad philosophical answers to the general idea. Ever since I got into theater, I've been assured that it is a dying art form. Oh, no, the movies have come. They're going to get... Oh, no, oh, no, now the TV's still... Uh, um, and I quite frankly think theater is a weed. It is an artistic weed. It is so hard to kill. The fact that you can get together some friends and a curtain and do a play, theater will always be here. And moreover, the complete inundation we have now in televised content and streaming yada yadas actually makes us more vital. Uh, the thing used to be, oh, this boy, do I watch NBC or go to a play? Now it's, ugh, do I look at one of the 10 million shows I'm beyond, or do I go have a unique experience? So it's completely conjecture. I, I live in a small town of 4,000 people. I don't really have my finger on the pulse. But I don't have any actual fear of dying theater. Um, I think we remain a vital art form. I think the magic that can happen inside of the walls of the theater is beyond anything that can be achieved by film or television. I love film and television. Uh, I'm a, I, I like all sorts of storytelling, but I never have any fear that uh, the theater is going to become obsolete. Um, yeah. Yeah. No. So um, in terms of the differences between them, uh, the main one is, is the one that uh, everybody essentially knows on some level, that, that film is a visual medium and, uh, and theater is more of the words. Um, I had uh, I had a friend recently in my writing group here in town who, who turned into a thing calling for like close-ups and I'm like, this is not our thing. We don't do this. This is not theater. This is what they do. This complete micromanaging, the ability of a camera to zoom in and just see what happens inside of someone's eyes. We can't do that. We have all these other things that we can do um, uh, in terms of having a direct relationship to an audience. And it's and it's tricky because I used to subscribe to the basic idea. Someone told me that, oh, that writing is cinematic. That won't work. You know, who's writing a cinematic? Shakespeare. Shakespeare's writing is cinematic. Short scenes cutting across massive dimensions, blah, blah, blah. Theater's the land of, um, uh, of metaphor, and we can do anything on the stage. Yeah. So uh, from my time as a story analyst in, in, in L.A., uh, I think the best thing that any writer can do, regardless of what medium they're writing for, 
is ready for truth and right for life. Don't try to write a movie. Don't try to write a play. Try to write a story uh, in that form. Uh, I saw so many screenplays uh, and and read a fair number of plays as well, where it feels like someone is writing a fake thing as opposed to writing a real thing in a form. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, particularly, that was, it was definitely in Hollywood a big part of it, where these you would read these screenplays and they just have a sort of film of unreality over them because they felt like they weren't real. Uh, like they were, I wrote a movie as opposed to I wrote a story about. Um, right. Uh, so I, I don't know. In terms of the differences, to some extent, they're they're fraying a little bit. I just, you know, in the end, if you're a writer, first thing you need to have is a story that you have to tell. Once you have to tell that story, then you want to figure out what format is it best told in. Uh, I just recently, um, part of my midlife crisis has been trying new things. Uh, and so I've, I've ventured back into prose since the first time. Uh, in, a, in a class I'm taking, and um, you know, you just you know, and I ended up writing a yeah, short story, and I'm like, wow, okay, I guess this was the form that this story wanted to be in. And when I read the story that I wrote for class, I'm like, you know what, I don't, I don't see this as a play or a movie. This was meant to be in this form. So I'd say that um, you know, in the end, you always should be able to answer the question, why should this be a play? Why is this a play and not a movie? Why is this a play and not a short story? Um, and that is about, you know, the magic we create, and it's so rare, but the, the magic that can happen in theater is about the connection that the audience feels with the characters on stage. When it's really hitting, when it's hitting on all, all cylinders, there is a, a, a cosmic morphing that happens, and the audience and the people on stage become one giant human entity. Uh, and it's so rare, but it's the thing we can do that no one else can do. Um, a movie can make me sob and cry and laugh and all those things, but it cannot take me and make me a part of a larger humanity. So no pressure, playwrights. You just got to make people part of a larger humanity. <laughs> no, I, I like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, very interesting. So, um, by the way, one one other technical playwriting question, and you you alluded to it somewhat indirectly, but it's always been one of those things that I've heard a lot of different perspectives on. So I'm just curious your opinion. Um, some directors, and I guess actors too, maybe really hate when playwrights put direction in the script. So there's different ways you can put what might be considered stage direction in a script or adverbs with lines. Um, what's your take on that? Oh, generally speaking, playwrights write too many descriptions in. Uh, and I think when you're in your early drafts, I think that's okay. You want to make sure that if you're imagining your play and you see something happening, you don't know necessarily why you saw it happening, but you saw it happening in your head and you want to write it in. And that's fine for your early drafts, but generally speaking, the fewer stage instructions you can have, the better you're going to be. Now, you know, obviously, Arthur Miller might argue with me. His plays include a lot of stage instructions. Yeah, he's one example. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Uh, but, but generally speaking, particularly in the modern world, sparsity is best. Like, if you're talking about those little things where, you know, you just have a quietly or angrily or with a smile, right. that sort of thing, yeah. the only reason to include those is if your dialogue will not, will send someone the opposite way. Nice. Like, if the line is, I love you, but you want it screamed with rage, mm. that's a instruction you need, because otherwise the person may well miss what you're intending. But the number of times that I'll see somebody, you know, have the stage instruction angrily before the line, I hate you with an exclamation point. <laughs> um, and I also, 
Right. It's about every stage instruction has to have a reason to be there. I, I was directing a play in San Francisco once, and it was the most acrimonious uh, relationship I've ever had with a playwright. But I remember them sitting next to me during the Tuesday or Wednesday night rehearsal, shoving the script in my face and pounding with their finger on the stage instruction that said they'd take a drag of the cigarette there because what? the actor hadn't done that. Right. And... Who I don't know. It's contractually obligated. Like you're supposed to do every stage instruction, every line, all that. But who cares? There wasn't a particular reason. It wasn't a beat break. It wasn't a real moment. The actor was on stage, living their truth inside of the characters created. They wasn't being destroyed by this not taking a drag at this particular moment. <laughs> so, so generally speaking, we're the we're the place of ideas and lines. We stimulate thought in our audiences. And who can't, you know, if it doesn't matter that they cross there and take a seat, if it doesn't matter that this line is said in this way, the la- the least you can, the more you can open yourself up as a writer to collaborating with the artists who are going to be working on your play, the better. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit of a heretic. I, I, I think that our relationship between playwrights and, um, uh, and, uh, and directors is a little off. I think we are not quite collaborative enough in our contract. It's tricky because the directors, uh, we're actually still living in a director's theater where they do all sorts of atrocities to our plays without telling us. But for me, where that come from is that we've created an unlivable relationship, like where everything has to be done exactly as we go, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't really make that much difference. So please don't, if I have a character who's gay or a character who swears a bunch, please don't make them not gay. Please don't take out all the curse words because your audience won't like that. That's altering the meaning of my work. If you if your audience can't put up with a gay dude or if your audience can't put up with that language, do some other play. You know, if your audience can't have those things, but don't change those. But that important thing that is violated every day in American theater um, comes out of the fact that they ignore it all the way through. When you, I went to work in college for staging a guy's play where I completely changed everything about it. I added a third character who had a song and all this stuff to this play. And I won an award for misdirecting this play that way. And and we just don't. We we are we have a problem in this country with the relationship between the playwrights and the other uh, and and the directors and producers. Um, and uh, we have smart people at all levels working on it and, and you know look it, it's not it's never going to be perfect but um yeah so anyway that was me i'm off a little diatribe there like i said i'm not i am all for playwrights rights i am absolutely a champion for those things i think sometimes we as the overall culture don't uh, uh <laughs> aren't giving enough to collaborate i got that opinion from a, an, a european i met at uh inch festival actually uh and um, and i think in hindsight that yeah he was right no, it's a very important and, and very good point. No, I, I want your opinion on this stuff. Uh, very interesting. Um, cool, yeah. So I want to talk about your background and everything you did leading up to, 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 the, to what you do now and everything. Uh, but first, and we'll, of course, post all this stuff in the uh, episode notes, uh, but, uh, tell everybody, uh, if they want more information about the, the festival, where do they go? Uh, easiest way is theaterconference.org. Yeah, the modern world, you never have to give people your website. You just say, Google the theater conference. I know. That really is the best way. All of my contact information is on there. Um, uh, you know, the, doing this job is the great honor of my life, and I am always, always happy to take time to talk about it. 
Very cool. And uh, yeah, I know, but I, I, I feel I would be remiss if I didn't get you to say it and I'll, I'll put it in the, I'll put the link in the episode notes. And, uh, for example, this year, the conference is coming up in June. Um, are you still accepting, uh, actor applicants or no? Yep, absolutely. No, well, quite frankly, if an actor wants to come and they tell me the day before they can come, you know, I won't have them use the initial round of casting, but there's always room. Uh, you know, we, we, there's always room for one more talented person. So, yeah, absolutely. But obviously the, the play component is, is finished at this point. They're all selected, yeah. At some point we do actually have to have deadlines and selections and all that. So, yeah, playwrights, uh, we'll open up submissions again in August. Exactly. All right, very cool. So, yeah, let's talk about, let's go back through your, your background and everything before all this. So, uh, where, where did you grow up? Uh, well, okay, I grew up uh, in upstate New York, Ithaca uh, and Oswego. Um, I wasn't doing much there except for a lot of Dungeons and Dragons and some mild petty larceny. Um, <laughs> and then I moved to Alaska my freshman year uh, of high school. And, uh, you know, when you move to a new place, you, you don't have any friends. But my one friend and I were in English class together, and we, uh, we went to see the school production of My Fair Lady. And I have no idea how it really was, but at the time I thought it was great. Like, I thought it was so much fun. I thought it was super. And, and that would have been the end of it for me. But my friend agreed with me and said we had to audition for the next play. Uh, so he he made me do it because he was a very dominating personality. And he, he got me to auditions. And I was given half of the smallest part in the play. Uh, like, they had so many people turn out because so many students said, I want to do My Fair Lady, uh, that they then uh, promptly didn't cast any of the fine actors who'd been in My Fair Lady cast only new people, and split some of the smaller parts into two parts. So I was porter number two in A Servant of Two Masters. Um, and uh, the play was terrible and wretched, but I, I was absolutely fit. Um, I went on, the next thing we did was a, a short play uh, called um, Voices from the High School, and we did it for the high school drama club. And I had a little monologue inside of that piece. It was a vignette piece, and my monologue was about uh, how I tried to kill myself, not done it, and I was glad not to. And at the end of my little piece, I got a standing ovation from some of the people in the audience and I'd never gotten a standing ovation for anything before and I thought that was amazing uh, so I was bit I ended up doing something like 40 plays over the next three years uh, in high school I would do one in the sixth period I would do the after school play and then in the evenings I would find a community theater and do whatever I could do for them um, I went to I went to London between my sophomore and, uh, and junior years uh, and saw uh, 37 plays over my eight weeks there um, and knew that that would be the course that my life would follow, that that was what I wanted to do. Uh, so um, so after I uh, graduated high school, uh, I sort of woke up in May and said, oh, are the rest of you applying to colleges? I'll go to the one here because they'll just take me. Uh, so I went to UAA Theater, a great program, has been a great program since it was started uh, in the late 70s by Michael Hood, uh, carried on uh, with great work by uh, uh, David Edgecombe and others, uh, and there's a current great new set there. It's a really interesting college that pulls from a, um, a super super interesting group uh, of, um, of, of Alaskans, so the primary people who go to school there. But uh, yeah, that program has always been great. So I did that. Uh, being a guy in my 20s, it took me nine years. I know a lot of people go to school for nine years, and they're called doctor. Uh, me, I'm called the guy with the bachelor's. Um, I, uh, I staged the greatest theatrical disaster in Alaskan theater history um, when I was about 26. Uh, I won't do the full story here, but I was uh, I was producing a, a, a Christopher Drang's Beyond Therapy, uh, and in the middle of the... Um, uh, opening scene uh, with the reviewers there from both papers. The lead actor uh, left the stage, got in his truck, and drove away. 
Uh, and um, and then I stayed on with the company for a year after helping them clear the decks. Andrea Gordon was making the right call. <laughs> there was no way we were going to go through all those plays and look for the diamonds in the rough. We needed a fresh start. Right. Someone had that. So uh, so I, I stayed their reading series. Uh, being their literary manager got me on board with the um, the board of the Playwright Center of San Francisco and um, a super organization still going on. Um, uh, me and a few of my other friends were part of a youth movement uh, in that. It was one of those uh, sort of horrible situations where you end up on a board where you end up with the generational battles um, between the people who've been there doing it for 25 years and the young whippersnappers who want to make them do it better. Um, at their, at our best, as a, as a, as a creature, we take the advantages of all ages. We take the energy of youth and the wisdom uh, of the elderly and, and combination of those things in the middle age. Yeah. And we together. Sometimes there, it ends up being the other, where either the elderly have to put the youth movement down because it's doing stupid things without thinking about them, or where the youth movement has to take over from the old because they're not willing to transform into what, into the world they're living in. And that was one of those situations with Playwright Center. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, then formed the company Three Wise Monkeys, um, with, uh, with a couple of friends down there, one of whom uh, I met in Belize, uh, my, uh, uh, darling, uh, Australian friend, Asia Stratford, a super playwright. Um, and we formed Three Wise Monkeys. We formed Three Wise Monkeys for the express purpose of producing work by Bay Area writers. Um, and uh, we started off with something called the Bay One X Festival, where we brought a bunch of other little, not not major companies together to produce a one act festival over three weekends uh, at Eureka Theater using my connections there. Um, and uh, and that went on for uh, long after uh, Asia, myself, and uh, the late Richard Bernier had all left it. Uh, I think we formed a really solid base for the company in terms of mission, in terms of what their products were. Um, um, and then, and then ended up moving to Mount Bees in 2003. So, yeah, I mean, obviously you've gotten to, to really, uh, have a lot of different experiences, uh, that, that, you know, give you, um, uh, uh, background for, for what you do now, obviously. Um, first of all, I'm sorry, sorry about what happened with your dad. Uh, but I do want to go back to, uh, something you touched on. Uh, I'm very curious. You said you were in LA and you worked as a story analyst. What does a story analyst do? Oh, um, you read screenplays and then you write very short descriptions of them for the producers so that they don't have to be bothered reading all those screenplays. <laughs> yeah. um, it was it was it was an interesting gig. Um, it was an interesting gig. Um, uh, it's um, you know you, there's so many screenplays uh, out there and. And they don't want to miss it. I was not very good at the job. Um, uh, I, I managed to, my only job as far as this tiny production company was, was to find things that would get made. My job was not to look for quality. My job was to look for scripts that would get made. And I rejected uh, three of them uh, that, that got picked up later and made by somebody else. So I don't know. I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> gotcha. Well, because that's, the, their goal is, 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 is a commercial one, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I remember one time, um, the, um, my producer, like, messengered a script over to me, um, uh, on a weekend. And so I, I, I read it and he asked, and he called me a couple hours later and go, what'd you think? And I'm like, oh, it's pretty terrible. And he's like, really? Because I like the title. And I'm like, well, yeah, you can produce the title, I guess. <laughs> but that screenplay was made into a movie of the week, not like three months later. It was crazy. Right. Um, and I stand beside my analysis. If you're talking about the art, that was stupid. But I suppose it was good enough to get made. 
Yeah, well, and again, getting back to what we mentioned earlier, too, you know, especially these days with these just endless um, need for content because of, you know, a million channels, a million streaming options, everything. Uh, I assume there's, they're out there, there's just a, a machine that, 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 that just wants more stuff to make, you know, no matter what the, no matter what the, the quality or the, or the genre or whatever it is. I don't even know how it works. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I kind of don't either. I'm hiding out up here, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, very cool. So, um, in addition to running the festival, you're also a professor there at the college, right? Uh, adjunct professor. Uh, yeah, adjunct professor. I teach. Uh, uh, I'm I'm simplified now. There was a, when I first moved here, they had just started a theater program, uh, very much based on the one that they have at UAA, a sort of full, well-rounded, uh, only an associate's version, because uh, we're a community college, and and they sort of hired me to run and coordinate it, but. My resume doesn't qualify me to be a professor at a thing, and they had all these technical classes that I couldn't teach. And so after a couple of years, I did a lot of work to sort of refigure that program uh, into an associate's in fine arts and playwriting. Um, and I ran that for a few years, but in the end, Eve and I would be hard-pressed to tell you that it's a good idea to, fresh out of high school, go get a two-year degree in playwriting in the middle of nowhere's, ah, damn it, I did it again, in Southeast Alaska, with one guy as your teacher. I just, and so it was just a really hard sell, so in the end we, uh, we never got enough interest in that to be full, so now I just teach in sort of theater once in a while, um, and do some other uh, idle teaching, but, uh, but it's, it's less a part of, uh, of my life than it was my first decade here, for sure. I understand. Um, so what else do we need to know about this town, Valdez, Alaska? What's what's it like there? First of all, especially for those of us with no real frame of reference, uh, is it is it it's near Anchorage, right? No, <laughs> uh, Valdez, Alaska has maybe four thousand people during the winter who live here, okay. and they. Um, uh, we are by the roads, 307 miles from Anchorage, the biggest. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. See, I told you I don't know. For some reason, I right, no, no, I, it's, I it's, thought it's, I had it's, seen it's, that. My mistake. But it's only like a 35 minute flight, so in some ways, it can be very quick. Maybe. Um, yeah. Uh, we um we we're uh, well known for our snow. Uh, we uh, we a few years ago had uh, over 500 inches, uh, and we average around 300 inches a winter. Um, we exist at the end of the road, like literally the road comes to us and then the road doesn't go any further. Uh, and to get here, you have to go through Keystone Canyon, which is a really majestic, skinny canyon that snakes, uh, it has a river and a road snaking through it. Uh, about, uh, I think it was 2012, maybe 2013, um, the, um, uh, the, the, there was a, an avalanche that completely filled Keystone Canyon with snow. Uh, hundreds of yards in the air, so we were completely cut off from road access to the rest of the city, uh, rest of the state. Um, uh, yeah. So, um, uh, so, but it's it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. Uh, I, refer, I refer to San Francisco as one of the most beautiful man-made places I've ever been, and I think of Valdez as the most beautiful God-made ever. Uh, down the rock mountains, shoot up thousands of, uh, of uh, feet into the sky. On the other side is Prince William's Sound, which reflects the other mountains on the other side that are shooting up into the sky. 
Uh, it is a full 360-degree panoply. It's like being in the Alps. Uh, it's really beautiful. Um, uh, it's not for everyone, uh, you know, uh, especially in terms of living. One of the things that's unique about my job, you know, not that many people go into my field and go to somewhere this far away from them. Uh, I don't see a play unless I produce it or travel 300 miles. That, that uh, was actually, that was exactly what I was about to ask you, is if there is any other, you know, outlet or opportunities for, for that there, yeah. There are not too many. I actually just signed up as an actor uh, in a summer tourist show. We recently have had that. Uh, we're having uh, cruise ships coming back through the town, and uh, a local uh, producer has decided to put on a, a tourist show. Uh, I'm very excited about it. It was written by two uh, local playwrights, um, uh, Heidi Frank and uh, Dennis Humphrey. And it's a very fun, very silly hour of uh, singing and dancing. I'm not going to sing or dance, but fun <laughs> silliness uh, about the town of Valdez. Um uh, so, so that's good and fun. We, um, we're just now, we've just now sort of arrived at a point of critical mass where we're planning to produce a lot of the work that we, uh, that we create, uh, for the college. I do a couple shows a year. Uh, we're planning to create it in-house. Um, last year, uh, I decided I was trying to get my local constituents in theater more involved in the planning. So I had a meeting in my house. It was about seven or eight of us saying, hey, here are the shows we want to look at, blah, blah, blah. And I had about four ideas that we do for the fall show. And they, they instantly rejected all of them and wanted to write their own show. So it's like, okay, it goes up in mid-November and it's July 1st. Sure, let's make our own show. Right. Uh, so I gave them a, a very broad principle like uh, idea of what to write. They went away and wrote 10-minute uh, plays, essentially, um, that we then came back together. We, we discussed how they could fit together, that sort of thing. They went away. They did another rewrite. They, we, again, got together, read, discussed. Then I was in charge of uh, being Frankenstein's playwright and uh, sewing them all together, all these various and sundry body parts. Right. Uh, and by hook or by crook, uh, the show, which is called If, uh, turned out super. It's my first time writing for children, and I was shocked how much I enjoyed it. But we turned out with a script that I'm really, really proud of. Uh, so we decided that since it had gone so well, uh, we would continue doing it. We formed the Feral Writers Guild. Uh, and uh, we're now working on our show for next fall, which is going to be a horror piece. But it was great. It was really it was, uh, it was super to involve so many people. My whole uh, my whole career has been about doing theater and plays by the people who are around me, the people who go to the same supermarket as me. If I live in the Bay Area, it's the Bay Area. If I live in Valdez, it should be the the Valdez people. Um, and I, I I do yeah, I do theater in Anchorage as well. And the more I can help support new writers, modern writers, that that's the part that interests me the most. Well, yeah, it's phenomenal, and I, I was going to say that, that you, you've gotten to, to do all those things with people in different places, and and you really get to have this really unique job and really unique life, um, which is which is very, very, uh, very impressive and very cool. So, uh, that's great, man. So, uh, okay, um, uh, before we wrap up, is there anything else you want to mention or, or uh, talk about? Uh, sure, I'll throw in sort of a, a last thing. Eddie, um, um, a conversation I've had multiple times in the last uh, last six months has been with people uh, sort of wanting, to, wanting to me to confirm that going into theater and going to school for theater is a bad idea. And it's so odd to me uh, that they do that because, I mean, they literally are going to someone whose job is in the theater, making my living, doing the thing I love. Yeah. And they want me, I had um, uh, an actress who was in that play, uh, their mom uh, 
came to me to go, oh, she's having such a good time. She wants to make theater a major. Can you talk to her about that? Oh, my God, really? No, and, and, it, and, it, and it's, it's, you know, it's part and parcel with the, the conversations going on about his learning good thing. Uh, in our country, and and moreover, it's part and parcel with how expensive college has gotten. So it becomes necessarily a part of the conversation. Right. I, my my roommate uh, of many years just recently passed away. He was in his sixties and he still had student loan debt hanging over him. Um, so it's certainly a valid conversation. But I just I don't know when we're producing a culture that tells young people not to follow their dreams. Oof, we got problems. That's terrible. I, I certainly <laughs> agree with that, and. I, not to cut you off, but I, and I can say from personal experience too, you know, whether you end up doing it as a career or not, whether you try it as a career for a while and then do other things, or as many people do these days anyway, you have multiple jobs and careers in your life. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with any of it, and you shouldn't sacrifice the experience of enjoying right. studying it because you want to and enjoying doing it because you want to. There's way too much. Yeah, it's like we're in this time of unlimited options, especially with the Internet and everything. You, you can really find out that there's so many things you can do and so many ways to make a living and this and that. And yet, people are still acting like it's the 50s and there are three career choices in your future. Right. Yeah. yeah, so I, I couldn't agree more, and, and you're right. It's extremely damaging, depressing, and, and dangerous for society in general, absolutely. Yeah, you know, if yeah. don't follow your dreams. That can't be good advice. <laughs> no, in theater is the study of why people do what they do, what motivates them, what causes them to... Quite frankly, the theater taught me how to act like I could do any job. So, you know, I couldn't jump into being a brain surgeon, but, like, while I was in San Francisco working for a temp agency, uh, I, I worked there for six months, and I was in the stocks department. And uh, while I was there, I got promoted to the some specialized stock thing. And when I left, the boss bought, gave me like $100 worth of chocolate as a thank you because I'd been such a good employee. To this day, I have no idea what, what I was doing meant. Right. I could move the box and the thing to the thing. I could put on a tie and pretend I knew. all that, But I had no idea what I was doing. I still don't know what I was doing. It didn't matter. I knew how to act like I knew what I was doing. And it was, not, most of life is not that hard. Um, yeah. I also never, and this is my, I'll make my I never intended or cared about whether I made a living in theater. Mm -hmm. I, was, I, was, I would have been content to work in bookstores and coffee shops till the day I died. This job had to drag me to it, kicking and screaming. And in the end, for artists, follow your passion, do what you need to do to deal with the, with the economics of living in a capitalist society, but don't let those things just stop you unless you want to stop. Um, you know, you don't, you can be a hobbyist and have an amazing life in the theater. Uh, I was once in a, on a, uh, a two person audience discussion with Beth Henley and the, and the horrible question came, you know, from the audience. How did you know when you got your big break? And Beth Henley was like, well, I wrote this play and I gave it to an agent, blah, 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 Pulitzer. Um, and then the question was handed over to me and I'm like, I don't know. I don't think I've had my big break yet. Um, but I managed to make my life in the theater and what a, what a blessing that is. Yeah, and again, people really don't get it that, first of all, for most people in the arts, 
It's not one big break. And even if it is, it still doesn't guarantee that you're then set for your rest of your life career. And what does that even mean? And again, you can and should do many different things uh, throughout your life. You know, people want to make it this simple path or this simple box, and it's so not. Um, and that applies to everybody, not just artists. So, yes, I, I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> um, well, I'm, I hope you keep discouraging uh, that kind of mindset and encouraging uh, people to do it. Um, yeah, man. So, again, uh, like I said, we'll post the stuff in the episode notes. The website for the festival is theaterconference.org. Do you want to share any other personal social media or no? Oh, sure. If you want to want to go visit the website, do who I was five years ago. I keep that online at DawsonMoore.com. Um, <laughs> keeping one's personal website updated. I'm not saying it's a low priority. <laughs> no, but listen, it's, it's a good website. That's how I found your bio and everything. Yeah, it's good. You bet. And if you want to read about my, my, my work, my plays, almost all of them are posted up on my website. And, um, uh, yeah, and so, yeah. Uh, no, that'd be the one. DawsonMoore.com, theaterconference.org. Beautiful. And uh, if anybody wants to reach me about the podcast for any reason, you can email Craft Business Life Podcast. That's all one word, Craft Business Life Podcast at gmail.com. So, yeah, Dawson, thank you again. Uh, this was really cool. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, like I said, some one of these days, one of these years, I'll, I'll make it out there for the conference. It's definitely uh, something I, you know, I definitely should experience and should have gotten my act together and gotten out there already. But um, anyway, so yeah, good luck with it. And maybe we could have you back, you know, uh, in the future each year to kind of give an update and talk about that year's conference and whatever. Uh, absolutely. All right. So thank you again so much. And uh, everybody, thank you for listening. And uh, until next time. Bye bye.